Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. You know, there is a church in Germany that has the figure of a lamb carved into its bell tower. And the story is told that when they were building this church, especially when they got to the tower, that one of the workers fell from the very high scaffolding. His co-workers ran down to check on him, assuming that he would be dead. Not only did he not die, he was barely injured. How does that happen? How does someone fall from such a great height and not even be injured? Well, it just so happens as the man was falling, a herd of sheep came through. And he fell on top of one of the sheep. Now, the sheep was killed, but the man survived. So literally, a lamb saved a man's life, and so the workers carved that image of a lamb in the bell tower to commemorate that event, and now tourists can come and they can look upon it and know the story of the man whose life was saved by a lamb. Our lives were saved by a lamb. Really not a literal lamb, but the lamb of God, a man, but somebody who was more than a man really. Let's look at John chapter 1, and starting in verse 19, here's what we read. It says, this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not, or, excuse me, yes, that's, that's right, I'm, I'm where I need to be. I need to zoom this in, I can't really see it anymore. It's 14 font, you'd think that that would be enough, but it's not. So it says, Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. I want you to imagine a five-star general being referred to as Fuzzy Bunny. Or a six foot four, 280 pound NFL defensive lineman being called baby cakes. My dad had a best friend, passed away recently, who was about 6'3, 300 pounds. They called him Pee Wee. Some nicknames, some names just don't fit the person, the outward appearance. Some things, some names, I should say, just don't inspire strength or courage or might. What's a little lamb gonna do? You see, the people expected a lion, not a lamb. 
I mean, what's so scary about a lamb? What's so intimidating about a lamb? Yet that's precisely what John says as he sees Jesus coming. You think about this in the area of mascots, school mascots, right? You think about school mascots, they are intended at least I think they're supposed to be intended to strike fear in the heart of their opponent. You know, they're supposed to be intimidating. They're supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, a scary looking to some degree. Here's some. You think about these. You know, they're showing their teeth, which is a sign of strength and might and, and trying to be intimidating and scary. Here's some mascots from my home state of Arkansas. These are pretty good. So you've got the Conway Wampus Cats. You know what a Wampus Cat is? It's a mythical creature that stands on four legs and fights with two. It's got six legs total. The Harrison Golden Goblins, that's a, that's a menacing figure. And then you have Winslow, Arkansas, the fighting squirrels. That's scary, isn't it? <laughs> Not exactly, right? When you look at mascots, the idea anyway is that they are scary, intimidating, that they strike fear in the heart of their opponent. A lamb doesn't necessarily do that, especially when you're expecting the Messiah to be a lion. However, the lamb, you have to understand, was a prominent figure in Israel's history. We have a prominent figure in our history, the bald eagle, right? That is representative of America. The bald eagle represents freedom. It's the symbol of our nation because it's such a majestic bird that represents power, right? Not exactly. A bald, eagle, a bald eagle is a scavenger. You might find it in a dumpster looking for food. It's not exactly the symbol that we have thrust upon it, but still, right? We take our ideals and we thrust it upon the bald eagle, and when we see an eagle, it represents freedom. It represents America, right? And there was a similar connection between the Lamb and Israel. It was a symbol of their nation, a symbol of their freedom, a symbol of their power. This connection represented power and freedom for God's people. The Lamb represented the power of God and the continual process of God rescuing His people from oppression. You see, the Lamb was a symbol of God's faithfulness and God's deliverance. And you know the story. It's a story that is drenched with lamb's blood. It's the Passover story. You see, while slaves in Egypt, God commanded the people to take the blood of an unblemished lamb and smear it on the lentils, the doorpost. This was to protect the household from the tenth plague, the death angel that would strike down the firstborn of every household. If that blood was on the doorpost, then the death angel would pass over that house and the firstborn would be spared. You think about this. You think about a, a couple of guys. One is an Egyptian and one is an Israelite. And they have an unlikely friendship. And they're discussing about this command to smear the blood on the lentils and the doorpost. And the Israelite says to the Egyptian, yeah, my wife is on me to do this. This is a command. I don't really see the point. Why sacrifice an unblemished lamb just to smear its blood on the doorpost? And the Egyptian's like, yeah, I hear you. I'm not doing that. And so they go about their way, 
and the wife of the Israelite is begging her husband, please, please, slaughter the lamb, smear the blood on the doorpost so that our family will be spared. And the Israelite is like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. And he procrastinates. Finally, at about 11.30 that night, he decides to listen to his wife so she'll stop nagging him. And he goes and he sacrifices the unblemished lamb. He finally, at about 15 till, you know, smears the blood on the doorpost. And he goes to bed. His wife and children go to bed happy. They can rest in comfort and in peace. But not far away, there's screams. There's wailing. Bitter anguish. Is all across Egypt, there are, there are families who are holding their dead child in their hands, crying out, why? Why did this have to happen? You think about if the roles were reversed, what if the Egyptian had smeared the blood on the doorpost and the Israelite had chosen not to? What would have happened? Well, the Israelite would have lost the firstborn of their household, or the Egyptian would have been passed over. It's all about blood, isn't it? The blood makes all the difference. There is no salvation for those who reject the blood. What would the expression, the Lamb of God, have meant to a first century Jew, to the audience that was present when John was roaming the earth waiting for the Lamb of God? Immediately, what would have come to their minds would have been a vivid picture They would have connected the phrase, the Lamb of God, to a specific event in their history, namely the Passover. The Passover lamb was the last straw for Pharaoh. That event brought the release of the Israelites from bondage. It brought freedom. And as a result, the Jews could celebrate and they could commemorate God's rescuing through that Passover meal. But as you know, that's not the end of the story. It continues because Egypt is not the only land that God's people would find themselves in captivity. Later, it was the Babylonians. The Israelites find themselves exiled again. And while it was a bleak time in the history of God's people, there is hope on the horizon. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah had to say. Starting in verse 1, it says, But there will no longer be any gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace." There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We've talked about this passage a lot over recent weeks and months. 
And hopefully it's all coming into focus. Hopefully we can bring it all together this morning. What Isaiah and the other prophets, especially those that we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, what they are pointing to is another deliverer. But this deliverer would be different, way different. He would not come to sit on an earthly throne, but rather to be a lamb laid out on the altar. And I want you to picture this scene. I want you to get a mental image in your mind of John seeing Jesus coming and directing the crowd that was gathered around and directing them and gesturing to them, look, here he comes. Here comes the Lamb of God. Here comes the one who is better than me, the one the prophets have been pointing to. Imagine God getting, or John, I should say, getting so excited and saying, I've been preaching about repentance, but look, here's the one who takes away the sins of the world. But he doesn't use the word look, does he? He uses the word behold. Behold the Lamb of God, because there's a difference between looking and beholding. When you look at something, you you take a glance at it. You take a a sneak peek. When you behold something, you drink it in. You soak it up. You behold the view from Pike's Peak. You behold the Statue of Liberty or the Grand Canyon, right? You behold things that are magnificent and cloaked in majesty. You behold Halley's Comet when it passes through. You behold a lunar eclipse. You don't just look at those things. You drink them in. Beholding gives the sense of inspiration and awe over something that you don't see every day. And perhaps even something that takes your breath away. John understood the truth about Jesus. And he wanted those in attendance to understand the truth of the moment. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, take a good, long, hard look. Drink it all in because everything is about to change. I want you to picture another scene in your mind. Picture your wedding day. Your wedding day. You show up, you stand there, you say, I do, and then you're out of there. You go back to living your single life. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? Are you married? Yeah, technically. I mean, you have a license. You recited some vows, but that's not a marriage, is it? What I see all too often in the church is a gospel of sin management. And it concerns me, and I've talked about this with preacher friends of mine a lot, Throughout Jesus' life, we, we see people who wanted him because of what they could get out of him. And that's really what the gospel of sin management is all about. I don't think people are all that different today than they were in the first century. The gospel has been reduced to something that is just a, a transaction with God, nothing more. It's an exchange of goods. We have sin, Jesus paid the price, we cash in. And we're done. Transaction complete. Nice doing business with you. That's kind of why we view the gospel, even baptism. We do business with with God. We exchange goods and services and we're on our way. We have sin. Jesus has blood. We contact that blood. and We move on because our need is met. It's why we see so many individuals who answer the invitation, who get baptized, who walk out of the doors of the church building never to be seen or heard from again. They just made a transaction, that's all. And you know what we call those folks? We can call them vampire Christians. A vampire Christian is someone who only wants Jesus for his blood, that's it. They only want him for his blood. 
They only want what they can get from Jesus and little else. This mentality comes from looking and not beholding. When you truly behold the Lamb of God, you see that there's more there than meets the eye. Let's read a little further in John chapter 1, verses 35 and following. It says, again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So the next day, Jesus comes up again. And once again, John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Two of John's followers Stop following John and start following Jesus, and I want you to pay special attention to what Jesus does. He turns around and he says to them, what do you seek? In other words, what are you looking for? It's really interesting when you read through the Gospels that when Jesus had a large crowd, he didn't do whatever he could to keep them. He became skeptical, didn't he? Not too many preachers would do that today. Preachers today see a large crowd. They do whatever they can do to keep them. Jesus got skeptical. Now he has some people following him, and he turns around and says, what are you doing? Why are you following me? What do you want? And so the entire gospel of John is an answer to that question. The entire gospel of John is an answer to the question that Jesus asked, what are you looking for? You ever notice that with the gospel of John? Are you looking for bread? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Are you in darkness? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Are you looking for heaven? Jesus says, I am the way. Are you searching for truth? Jesus says, I am the truth. Are you looking for eternal life? Jesus says, I am the life. Are you looking for an answer to death? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. John's gospel is an answer to the profound question, what are you looking for? But what specifically were the disciples looking for? Well, notice their response. They reply to Jesus' question with a question. They ask, where are you staying? Now understand, the disciples, these people that are following Jesus, they, they're not concerned about Jesus' hotel arrangements. They're not concerned about where he laid his head the night before. Now when they ask the question, where are you staying? They're basically asking, where do you abide? Where do you dwell? It's not a domestic question. It's a relational one. It's a question that highlights the major theme in the Gospel of John. It's all about relationship. And Jesus talks a whole lot about abiding. And I have some scriptures up here that talk about it. Jesus simply answers, come and see. And now this dialogue is, is, is not only very interesting, it also speaks volumes to us as modern day disciples. Because in this scene, we see the entire gospel story play out. The two disciples had a desire to know where Jesus dwells, and Jesus invites them to come and see. What's he inviting them to come and see? Well, it's not the place where he slept the night before. It's not the stone where he laid his head. No, he's inviting them to come and see him. He's inviting them to spend time with him. He's inviting them to have a relationship with him. He's inviting them to come and dwell where he dwells. 
Come and see. I have a relationship with the Heavenly Father, and you can have that relationship as well by having a relationship with me. We can all abide here because it's all about relationship. Jesus is responding by saying, when they say, where do you dwell? The same place you could dwell, basically, is what he's saying, with God. These men accept Jesus' invitation. They go, they hang out with Jesus for the day, and they're forever changed. Just like that. That's it. That's the gospel, isn't it? Seek Jesus. Accept his invitation. Follow him. Be transformed by him. Dwell with him both now and for eternity. And don't overlook the fact that Andrew went out to his brother and said, we have found the Messiah, and he brought his brother to Jesus, because that's what you do. When you find the Messiah, you go and tell everybody. You proclaim it, and you get anyone and everyone to come and follow with you, especially your own family, right? You invite people to meet Jesus, because Jesus invites people to meet Jesus. Come and see. It's a powerful invitation that could have eternal ramifications. But it all relates back to relationship. It all goes back to dwelling. This whole episode is about relationship. We've beaten this horse too many times to count, right? But it's important to understand. The moment that the Lamb of God arrives on the scene, it's about relationship. It's about following. It's about dwelling. And this theme plays out over and over again in Scripture from Old Testament to New. God has always desired a relationship with His people. A holy God who is diametrically opposed to sin has always sought a way to bring people close. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of an unblemished lamb. In the New Testament, it's the blood of an unblemished man. But either way, it's all about blood. And the blood not only connects us with God, it connects us with one another. Because Christianity is a religion based on relationship. You don't believe me? Visit the widows and orphans in their distress. Love your enemies. Love one another. Encourage one another. Bear one another's burdens. All the one another passages in the Bible. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. The Good Samaritan. The sheep and the goats. The Great Commission. The church is the bride of Christ. We are God's children. God is our Father. Jesus is our Lord. Community is what makes Christianity. And it all starts with our Heavenly Father and that heavenly relationship. Hopefully we understand this. Hopefully that is where we find meaning and purpose in the religion. Because make no doubt about it, Christianity is a religion. Those who say, well, I love Jesus, I just don't like religion. I hear you. But Christianity is a religion, and it's a religion based on relationship. You don't have the religion without relationship. And so when we get caught up in what do I have to do to get to heaven, and you know, how do I stay saved, and how do I continue to obey the gospel, and what does it mean to live out my baptism, all those things, talk about following rules, all that relates back to relationship. It's all about dwelling with Him. You know, in 1996, two guys, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, worked on a research project at Stanford University that would ultimately make them multi-multi-millionaires. It was the search engine Google. And if you're technologically challenged, Google is just a way for you to navigate the Internet, right? So you get on the Internet. There's several search engines. Google's probably the most popular. And in the search bar of Google, I think I have a slide. So in the search bar, you just type in whatever it is you're looking for, and it brings up results. Kind of narrows down your focus a little bit. So 
when it comes to our spiritual lives, there is a sense in which we have Google, right? If you were going to have a spiritual Google, if you were to put your name in the search bar, or if you were to put what you're looking for, I should say, in the search bar, what would you put? What is it you're searching for? More money? Better health? Better life circumstances? What are you looking for spiritually? Forgiveness? Hope? Salvation? The answer to all these inquiries is simply Jesus. What are you looking for? Jesus is still asking that question. Just understand, the answer is not just blood, it's not just relief, it's not just fire insurance, it's not just a life insurance policy, even though Jesus is the answer, but the answer goes beyond cleansing. That is certainly a big part of this, but it's a relationship that God wants, which is why He sent the Lamb of God. It's not just the blood that saves us from sin. It's a saving relationship that delivers us from our own selfishness and transforms us inside and out. And so, I would say to you this morning, behold, look deeper. Don't just take a glance or a sneak peek. There's more here than meets the eye. This is not simply a transaction. This is not simply an exchange of goods. This is a life investment. You don't just benefit from the blood, you benefit from the blessing of fellowship. That's what salvation is. It is fellowship with the Heavenly Father. And yes, that comes through the Lamb of God, but the blood not only covers our sin, it puts us in Christ. It gives us a dwelling place with our holy God. We get to live where He lives, we get to dwell where He is at. And let me tell you, in case you're searching, there is no better place to be than in Christ. So, this comes to the point where I offer an invitation, right? You know, me and uh, a lot of my preacher friends have talked about the invitation. I think we're going to do a podcast on that soon. You know, the invitation's a tradition, right? Um, we wouldn't go to hell if we didn't do it. However, I think it's a good tradition. And I think it's one we should keep. But I think over the years, we presented the invitation as an urge to get people to rush to baptism. And we lay out the plan of salvation. Someone responds, they get wet, they leave the church building, and we never see them again. And that's a concern to me because the Great Commission starts with go and what? Make disciples. And making a disciple takes a little more time. There's more effort involved than just rushing someone to baptism so that we can meet a certain quota, right? There's more to it than that. And so the invitation, I believe, every week should be about what does it take to be a disciple and can we help you understand discipleship? Maybe you're at the point where you're just at the base level. You, you need to start with, with studying the Bible with someone. That's great. That's fantastic. you got to start somewhere, right? Maybe you're at the point where you have faith, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you know you need to do something, and you're ready to take the next step. We're ready to help you with that as well. Or maybe you've been contemplating this for quite some time, and something's been holding you back, but now you're ready to be baptized. There's a whole lot of water behind this screen, and we can do that as well. But we want you to understand it's not just life insurance. It's not just a fire insurance policy. It's about more than that. It's about being a disciple. And this is a church that is committed to making and growing disciples. What are you looking for?
Let us help you find it. Come as we stand and as we sing.